It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Today is National Tell-A-Story Day. And this episode, I feel like, is going to take a little bit of a tangent from that, unless Jason has a story that he's dying to tell. Do you? I don't know that I'm dying to tell a story, and nor was I prepared <laughs> to tell one. Well, sometimes you're good at improv. I don't know. I mean, there's a mil- good guy. Where the hell would I even start? Like, I feel like I would need some sort of... What's the first thing that comes to mind? If like, okay, let's say you were sitting around a campfire and everybody was telling stories and you were put on the spot and you had to just share the first story that came to mind, what would it be? Oh, probably the time when I realized my penis was different than anybody else's. No. Are you That's serious? That's the first one that came to mind is I remember when I was a little boy. And, you know, when you're little and you don't have any, you're very innocent, right? When you're little and you don't have this idea of differences and you don't see skin color. And when you're really, really little, there are no boundaries, right? But I remember in particular, there was this one moment where I was playing with some friends of mine and we had like, we were on like a, I don't know, playing soccer in the backyard and we all like went in to like take a bath or whatever. And I remember looking at all the other little boys and being like, why is mine different? And then I had to have this whole conversation with my mom at a young age where she explained why mine was so different. I don't know why that was the first one that came to my mind, but you asked. That's the first story that came to my mind. Okay. Do you see? And this is what happens when you put me on the spot. He's like, he's going to tell a story about the time he realized his, his penis was different than all the other little boys. There's your story. It made me a little uncomfortable, but more as a joke uncomfortable. I don't, this is not the first time that I've heard that story. <laughs> oh, really? I don't recall telling you this. <laughs> I don't recall telling this story. But I actually think that's a very, maybe there's a guy out there listening. You know, okay, on this topic, it does remind me and perhaps, I don't know if we'd ever do a whole episode on this, but maybe, I think it'd be... About circumcision? Mm, not circumcision specifically, but I was thinking just all the different ways that we feel like our bodies are different oh, from one another. That's a much broader topic. Yeah. Yeah, that could be an interesting story. I mean, it definitely is interesting to me because obviously women struggle a lot with that. But I think that men struggle with their body image more than our society likes us to believe. Agreed. And I know people that felt awkward because they weren't circumcised. And Jason and I have a mutual friend who feels sad that he was circumcised. He never was. He wishes that he could grow it back. Or And actually, on that point, Whitney, I've heard about techniques specifically using measured weights like small weights that one can attempt to not necessarily regrow it but sort of have a effect that it almost looks like foreskin by using weights to like pull the skin back over it there's a lot of interesting ways i've heard of people dealing with this hmm. it's fascinating and i wonder as a listener if you've ever reflected on this especially because most of our audience is women but I actually think it could be a really interesting conversation with any men in your life that you feel comfortable talking to about this, because I feel like maybe men don't even want to talk about it with women. Are body shaming issues like in general? Well, no, not specifically general body parts, but I think circumcision <laughs> specifically, 
I feel like is a really interesting topic and some people feel indifferent to it or, well, that's just the way it is, depending on where you grow up and what your culture and religion is and all of that. So anyways, maybe we can do a whole episode on this. And actually, we could even ask our mutual friend if he would come on our show and talk about it. That would be interesting. You know what? I think that's a great idea because he would be a fascinating guest in general. Exactly. So we're not going to say his name, but we will ask him and see if he'd be comfortable. I bet you he would. I mean, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but if I was a betting woman, I would say he would probably want to talk about it because he talks about it to us very openly and... I think that could be a fascinating subject. I may be seeing him on Saturday anyway, so I can broach the subject with him on Saturday. There you go. How are you seeing him on Saturday? Well, our mutual friend Nicole has a thing that she just started called the Martha Project here in Los Angeles, where she's getting food donations. Apparently this Saturday coming up, 300 home-cooked meals to serve the homeless. They go, go out with masks, they go out with gloves, they go out with protective equipment and serve these meals to the homeless because they are one of the most at-risk populations here in Los Angeles as we are recording, the time of recording this during the COVID-19 crisis. So he's going to be there volunteering to make the meals and deliver them to the homeless population in LA. And I may go do that because you know how much I love doing that. And with my father having battled homelessness at the end of his life, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And I like to volunteer whenever I can. And for the listeners, since a large part of this episode is about stories, if you're curious about Jason's story with his father, I believe you talked about that in the second episode we ever did, which was your story. So if if you do want to hear either one of our stories, we each did an episode, episodes two and three of this podcast, way back to the beginning, which came out in December 2019. You can hear our backstory where we definitely share a lot of personal stories there. The things that maybe we don't talk about necessarily on, I don't know, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It definitely, I felt that in this podcast in general, I feel like we've been sharing a lot more vulnerable, deep aspects of our lives that, I don't know, for me, I don't think that I've shared necessarily on other platforms up till now. I think that to me, that's Mm -hmm. why I feel like this podcast is so precious to me and so wonderful because I think I'll say we have gone really, really deep in ways that perhaps previously we haven't. And that is a big part of our show is going deeper and having conversations with ourselves and other people that we bring on as guests to discuss things that they may not normally talk about. I mean, I love Miyoko's episode, by the way, when she talked about her backstory as a singer and things that she doesn't usually talk about in her professional career as a non-dairy... What would you call it? (laughs) Plant dairy. Is that what she calls it? Plant dairy? I think that's the colloquial industry term that I've seen thrown around a lot. Plant dairy and plant-based dairy are two things that I've seen that terminology being thrown. I don't think that it's a trademarked thing. And the dairy industry is definitely very sensitive. And Miyoko's actually been at the center of a few (laughs) challenging experiences with the dairy industry. So anyways, we have lots of episodes. We will link to all of them, if you didn't know this already, in our show notes at wellevator.com. That's our website, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Or you can go directly to podcast.wellevator.com. Check out the show notes for this episode, which will lead to other episodes. And you can kind of go down a rabbit hole, cue them up. One of my favorite apps out there is called Overcast. And it's a great app for listening to podcasts. I haven't 
research many competitors. So maybe there's another one that does something similar. But I really like Overcast because you can go and create like playlists and queue up episodes. So that's been really handy for me. I, I don't know if you can do that in the other major podcast platforms, but there are so many that you can use. And I like to kind of like bookmark episodes that I want to listen to in the future. So we would recommend doing that. If you hear us referencing another episode, just go right onto the app and queue up any of the others that sound interesting to you so you don't forget to listen to them. So this thing of storytelling, Whitney, that you've brought up, I think it's so interesting because you created this evocative imagery at the beginning of this episode about sitting around a campfire and someone puts you on the spot. And I feel like the art of storytelling in our culture is something that I thankfully am seeing preserved in certain mediums like The Moth. The Moth is one thing that I absolutely love that I've been listening to on and off for probably the last five years on NPR and have actually gone here in LA to see some moth like uh, story slams where people get up and there's a subject and they, they tell stories about them. But for me, when I think about how I have discussed certain things in the wellness industry, when I've talked about my story and my struggles with depression and mental health and suicidal ideation and anxiety, whether it's been on a stage talking to people that you've been there for a lot of these talks the past few years, or it's just really conversing through email, I think that the power of story and being really vulnerable and sharing with people, not just our triumphs, right? Not just the wins in life, but what we've survived through, what we've learned, uh, the heartbreak, the loss, the reemerging from the ashes, like the proverbial phoenix which I feel culturally is happening everywhere in this moment that we're recording this. I mean, there, there seems to be such a massive archetypical death and rebirth of our human society at once taking place all around the world, that the power of these stories, it serves to me as a, a perspective and also a comforting thing. And as I'm on this riff, I was talking to my mom maybe a month ago when we first got the kind of shelter in place orders or when the quarantine was just first starting. And I had a lot of anxiety. I was talking to my mom, Susan, and she was relaying to me about when she was a really young girl in Detroit, Michigan, how the polio crisis was massive. And there were literally tens of thousands of kids dying or being horrifically disfigured from polio. And just the fear and the stress and how everyone was gripped by like, oh my God, is my child going to get polio? Her as a child or her brothers and sisters, are we going to get polio? And she's like, we survived that as a human race, and we're going to survive this. And her just telling me with such vivid imagery of her growing up in Detroit during the polio crisis, it gave me comfort, but it also gave me perspective with what we've all been dealing with currently with, you know, with COVID-19. So I think the power of story historically gives us comfort and perspective and dare I say it, hope. I think really is that that's what I got most out of the conversation with her when she was telling me was just hope. Like we're going to not just survive this, but we're going to be strong and abundant and healthy. And I don't know. It was just a very, very soothing thing when she got into that story of her as a little girl. It definitely is such a big way that we as human beings connect with one another and learn about each other. And storytelling is something that I feel like these days we kind of reserve it for childhood. And yet it also is a reminder that that's why we love to listen to podcasts and watch TV shows and movies and read books. Is Those are all stories, but I just don't know if we, we really consider them storytelling unless we step back and examine it. And one thing I did recently that I was really kind of like, I don't know, proud is the right word, but I felt like it was a good decision for me 
is I read a fictional book this past week. And I normally read nonfiction and go through at least one book a week if I can. I'm often reading multiple books at once, listening to some on audiobooks. I love books. And I was on TikTok as usual. And I came across this one TikTok where the creator was listing out her favorite books and books that had made a really big impact on her. She shared like five of them. And then in the comment section, all of the top comments were about this one book called We Were Liars. And it was just such a great example of the power of like social influence and how when you hear enough people talking about something, you start to get really curious. It, it definitely happens with TV shows and movies, but I don't find that it happens often enough for books, especially fictional books, unless it's like something that's huge, like Harry Potter, for example. Anyway, so I went and looked up this book, We Were Liars, and I got the Kindle version of it. And it was so good that I finished it in maybe three days, maybe faster than that. Wow. Yeah, it actually wasn't that long of a book. It was digital, so I don't know how many physical pages it was, but it was very short chapters and it was broken up into three or four sections. And I really wanted to finish it quickly because what everybody kept talking about in the TikTok comments was how the end of the book was really shocking. And so I couldn't wait to get to the end, which was like such an interesting experience because I knew there was a twist coming. It's always interesting when you consume some story, again, whether it's a visual story, an audio story, or a written word, and you know something's going to happen, but you don't know what it is. And I think that made it a little less enjoyable because A, I, I felt like I was in a rush. I was so curious what was going to happen and if it was going to shock me. And it did actually shock me, even though I knew there was going to be a twist. I didn't see the twist coming, which is, I think, why this book was, I should say, I knew a twist was coming, but I didn't quite expect what it ended up being, even though throughout the entire book, as I was reading it, I kept trying to guess what the twist would be. But it was really interesting. I'm not going to give it away, but it was something that I've seen done before. And if you read the book or you have read the book, it can remind you of some other popular stories, which I'm not going to mention because then I would give it away immediately. But it was enjoyable. And I kept reading the book thinking like, I don't know if I like it that much. Like, <laughs> I wasn't really feeling super into it, but I was committed to it because everyone kept saying it was really good. And it was one of those things where, you know, you consume some sort of story because people are raving about it and you have all these expectations. And then there was a part of me that was afraid that it wasn't going to meet my expectation. It was just such an interesting experience. But it was also interesting simply because I don't read fiction that often. And this inspired me to read fiction more regularly, maybe try to go like every fourth or fifth book, maybe read a fictional book once a month or once every other month and just see how it affects me. Because I definitely notice with a lot of the nonfiction books that I read, they activate my brain in such an intense way because most of the books I read are about business, personal development, health, and it's like I'm learning versus a fictional book, a fictional story of any type. You could say the same thing about podcast, right? Is if I'm listening to like the serial podcast, for example, even though that was a true story and you got really invested and 
there was a lot of like the true crimes side of it. It still just felt like the story laying out for you and you could kind of relax a little bit more than when you're listening to an educational or informative podcast. It's just such an, a fascinating thing. And I think each of us needs to do that every once in a while. And a lot of people do that through TV and movies, but I would encourage people to actually read a book and maybe even get a physical copy. I know you love physical books, Jason. I'm more of a digital reader because I like the convenience. I like having just this small little device that it's on. I like the fact that it wastes less paper and that I can highlight it and I can, I don't know, there's just a search for words and things like that. I, I like that process. But when I was reading We Were Liars, I kind of wished that it had been a physical book just to have the smell and the texture and that whole experience. You kind of feel like you are getting more into the book when it's in your hands in that way. Agreed. And that's the tactility of a physical book, as you said, the smell, the feel, the turning of the pages. And also just there's a deep love that I have that even as a child at a very, first of all, I started reading at a, according to my mother, abnormally young age, maybe even a year or a year and a half sooner than whatever the baseline age is most kids start reading. So I had this deep love for reading and the written word and writing my entire life. You know, I can, around the same time I wanted to be a paleontologist, I remember wanting to be a writer too. And I would actually fall asleep with books in my bed as a child, as if they were stuffed animals. I would bring books to bed and cuddle with them, which is shock that I wasn't getting more paper cuts as a kid sleeping with books. I think the point you made about this book you're reading, Wit, and how it, it reminded you of some elements of other books or other stories. One of the things that I've been obsessed with my entire life, speaking of childhood, was mythology. And I remember growing up and reading the Greek and Roman and Egyptian myths about the gods and the tales and the adventures of Perseus and Hercules and Amenhotep. And I mean, those three specifically, Greek, Roman, and Egyptian, I was just crazy about as a kid. And as I got older and started reading, we've referenced him many times here, one of my favorites, Joseph Campbell, who so brilliantly has taken the myths of the Bible and the Quran and ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt and all the ancient, ancient mythologies, the Sumerian mythologies, and how those archetypes, those story elements are very much the same plot points and story arcs and good versus evil and the ethical quandaries and the quandaries of love and the quandaries of duty and the quandaries of obeying God. And all of these elements we still see in our modern movies and TV shows, Joseph Campbell's point was these are nothing new at all. These story arcs, these plot points, these character dramas are things that were taken from thousands of years ago from Sumeria, Rome, Greece, Egypt. And I think as a kid, I didn't realize that. But I remember the first time I became aware of it was when I got obsessed with Star Wars as a kid growing up in the 70s. And I remember George Lucas talking about how obsessed he was with Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and these ancient story archetypes. And if you look at Star Wars, in particular, Darth Vader and his arc of fall from grace and redemption and going back to the light and all of those things, I mean, these are ancient, ancient stories. There's really nothing new about them. The characters, the settings, the fashion, the dressings, if you will, are new. But these stories, we've been telling these stories forever. And Joseph Campbell actually has an amazing book about this very thing called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it tracks these story elements throughout our history. And we've just been telling the same stories with different characters over and over and over again for thousands of years. It's really fascinating. It is for sure. And 
This leads me to my next point, which is something that I've been contemplating. (laughs) I heard about this maybe a few weeks to a month ago, and then I decided last night to look into it more in depth and take some time to reflect on how I felt about it. And that is this blog post that Tim Ferriss posted in January. Do you know what I'm about to say, Jason? I have no idea. I don't think we've actually to this point referenced him on the podcast. I think this is the first time we're bringing him up. So I don't know what you're going to talk about. No. Okay. Well, yeah, it's interesting how you go through phases. There have been times where I've been really into Tim Ferriss's work. I've read his books and I would listen to his podcast a lot and I haven't lately. And then I saw a reference to this blog post I'm about to talk about, which came out in January 20th, 2020. That'll be linked to in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And it was some other newsletter that I'm subscribed to mentioned this. I read the little summary of it and I thought, whoa, (laughs) this is really interesting. And then last night I took the time to read Tim's post and it's really good. I actually want to go through it and bring up a few points from it. Well, let me just give you the summary. I'm going to go through it right now. And Tim's just an incredibly thoughtful person. I really respect him for his perspectives on life. He's kind of like a life hacker. I don't know if he uses that term for himself, but he's definitely into figuring out things and experimenting and just seeing what his brain does, how his body responds and all of that. And so I'm just always super interested in that. And he started off this blog post by referencing a public statement from a renowned mathematician named Donald Knuth. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. K-N-U-T-H. And part of this statement, he said, email is a wonderful thing for people whose role in life is to be on top of things, but not for me. My role is to be on the bottom of things. What I do takes long hours of studying an uninterruptible concentration. I thought that line about email is really interesting and we can talk about that at some point <laughs> because it goes back to about setting priorities, which is a little bit of the theme of this blog post, but there's a bigger theme here, which is about making smarter decisions. So after quoting him, Tim goes on to talk about how he wants to make 2020 the year of smarter decisions. And he was pondering how to specialize in speed versus finding targets that don't require speed. And that was why that line about email really stuck out. That specifically the line that says, my role is to be on the bottom of things. And then Tim started reflecting on how he has made many good fast decisions, but has never nearly made good rushed decisions, which... By the way, Jason, I cannot read the word decisions or hear the word decisions without thinking about that song that you made up on your TikTok account. So we might need to pause for you to reenact it. I don't know that I can do the voice effect, though, because part of it was the vocoder and the voice effect was like, decisions, 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 Okay. I got to record it. As a sidebar here on this might get uncomfortable. Whitney, at some point, I think over this quarantine period, I have to go through 
hundreds of voice memos on my iPhone of snippets of songs because I, good God, just lock me in a studio for six months, please. At some point, just lock me in a studio. Okay. Also, sidebar, I will point out one of the funniest or most interesting, maybe not funny, but one of the most interesting things about human behavior is a lot of us will say things like, I just need X amount of time to get things done. And here we are in quarantine right now. We are mandated by the state of California. Most people in the world have gone through some type of quarantine period. And for us, it's been over a month. And yet, have we actually done all of the things that we wanted to do if we had more time on our hands? Probably not. <laughs> like going through hundreds of song ideas on my voice memos, no. It's rarely time that gets us to take action. It, it's about setting some sort of priority or finding motivation. And I'm sure this will also come back up in the topics of decision. So going back to, and by the way, Jason's song, the decision song we just referenced, it is definitely a bit of an inside joke, even though it's based on a public piece of content he put out on TikTok, which we will link to in the show notes for you. But it's also referenced in one of our previous episodes with Justin Polgar, The Power of Yes. At the very end, actually, I don't remember if it made it into the podcast or an outtake. I think we posted this on somewhere. I remember editing like a clip or something of that. I don't know where that went. Isn't it on our Patreon page? Oh, it might be there. Yeah. So if for all of our patrons and if the listener is interested in helping us keep this podcast going because we need money to do it. Patreon is a great way to support this podcast. And we have exclusive BTS that's behind the scenes clips and videos and exclusives on our Patreon account, which we will link to in the show notes. One is wellevated.com. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link it there. Yes. Okay. Enough tangents. Back to this article. So Tim's very interested in making better decisions. And he says that fast decisions can be made from a place of calm, whereas rush decisions come from a place of turbulence and blurred judgments, which I thought was a really interesting statement. So he's asking himself, how can he create an environment that fosters better often non-obvious decisions. And then he started to notice a pattern within himself. So he looked for single decisions that remove hundreds or thousands of other decisions. Okay, so a lot of us get into this place of decision fatigue because we make one seemingly simple decision, but that leads us to having to make lots of decisions as a result. It creates this domino effect. And so if we can strip it away and make simpler decisions or take things out of our lives that cause us to make a ton of decisions, it can add a lot less stress and take away some of the exhaustive mental energy. Does he give specific examples? Because as you're saying this wit, my mind starts tumbling into a myriad number of scenarios of making a decision that eliminates hundreds or thousands of other decisions. That's a very weighty, dense statement. And I'm curious if any examples are given for that. Yes. Well, there's a big one here. We'll tie into the theme of this episode. And he had to ask himself, what can he categorically and completely remove, even temporarily, to create space for seeing the bigger picture and finding gems? And he decided that he was not going to read any new book that were published in 2020. What? And here's his reasons why. No new books. So he said, first of all, this statement really blew my mind. You ready for this? This is like, 
<laughs> a little on the morbid side. His first point, his first reason why he's making this decision is that we don't have that much time left to read. He references somebody that calculated that we might only read another 300 books before we die. So if you're around Tim's age, which I think is probably mid 40s, sounds about right. He's calculating he could only actually read about 300 more books before he dies. And just hearing that number, I'm like, whoa. That's frightening. It's also frightening because I'm looking over at the stack of unread books staring back at me and going, Jesus, there might just be a hundred right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I think my grandfather said this to me. Might have been my dad. Maybe I made this up, but I'm attributing it in my head to my grandfather who told me that he felt sad because he wouldn't be able to read all of the books that he wanted to in his lifetime. Like there was always another book that he wanted to read. And it's so interesting because I feel like we take books for granted. And especially growing up when in most school systems, we're kind of have all this required reading. And I was thinking about this too recently, how in high school, you would have to read certain books and do reports on them and how so many people would like end up just doing the cliff notes or whatever, just because they didn't want to read the book. So they just decided to get the summary so they could complete their homework assignments. And I've seen there's a bunch of adult versions, not that adults can't use cliff notes, but I guess more modern versions of it. There's a couple websites and applications you can download. One of my favorites is called Blinkist, and we can link to that. It's a great resource. It summarizes the books in both written and audio form. So you could read a summary of a book in 10 minutes versus spending like five hours reading a book or three hours, however long it would normally take. So those are really handy because that allows you to get the concepts of books. But I actually have shied away from using services like that because I don't find them nearly as rewarding. That's not the reason that I read. I read for all of the nuances and the quotes. And like I said earlier, I love highlighting books and pulling quotes out of them. And I've actually started up systems for myself with nonfiction books where I will highlight and I will try to implement the things that I'm learning or put them into things that I'm teaching, especially when I'm coaching a lot of the things I read in books end up being quoted in my coaching courses. Like the one I'm working on right now, Pod Impact, I took a ton of advice that Seth Godin shared in one of his recent books about marketing. And I was able to share that with my students. And that was really rewarding. I think Jason and I did this with the Consistency Code and Wellness Warrior Training, our programs. And, you know, of course, you could pull some of that data out of a, an app like Blinkist. There was another one called like summaries.com or something like that or summarize. Again, I'll link to this in the show notes if you are interested, because I think they're great depending on your reason for reading. But I just love getting deeper into a book and finding my own quotes. It's not just the points. It's about the actual words that the author uses that I really enjoy. I also want to make a point too that I think that when we use something like Cliff's Notes or Blinkist, and for the record, I always greatly disliked Cliff's Notes growing up. Like I remember seeing other people use them. Is it Cliff Notes or Cliffs? Like I'm Cliff and I made these notes, or is it? 
Hearing you say it differently than me is making me second guess how I was saying it. And I, I'm curious it now. It is Cliff's notes, plural. So Cliff is like a person? It is capital. Clifford is a person. He's a big red dog. And apparently this big red dog named Clifford has been writing. It's not that dog. It's not that dog, but it is Cliff's notes. I'm going to go look up the history of Cliff's notes right now as you're talking because now I need to know. Why is it called Cliff's notes? Okay, it's right there on the website. Huh? So the name has changed subtly over the years to signify the break. They dropped the apostrophe and Cliff apostrophe S notes. Cliff's notes became Cliff's notes without the apostrophe. For decades, the company operated under this name until John Wiley and Sons, which became the publisher in 2001, streamlined the name to one word, which is now Cliff's notes. Huh. But that doesn't explain who Cliff is. It doesn't. But my point was this. I wanted to make a point about Cliff's notes and about Blinkist at all. Nuance is lost. You get a plot point. You get a structure of the flow of the book. But to back up what you said, Whitney, the nuance is lost. And I believe that the gems that we talk about, those aha moments, I don't personally, when I've read summaries of books, I've never received a big aha moment or a revelatory moment, as they call them, of like, wow, this is some life-changing information. Or to your point about fiction books, being able to see the... How do I say this? When I look at characters in fiction books in particular, I see myself in the heroes and the villains, right? I think that's what makes it the juiciest is when you have characters that have both, quote, good and evil in them, or there's some sort of natural energetic or intentional conflict within these people, which is a very human thing. And so with Cliff's Notes and Blinkist, I don't feel like the nuance or those gems or those moments of reflecting and seeing ourselves in the characters, those things are not present. And that's the issue that I have with those things. Right. And you could actually use a platform like Goodreads, which I think is actually my preference, although I don't really use it to look for summaries or anything. But Goodreads has so many great quotes. And I would say that I don't know if they're connected. Maybe you can connect to them, but I don't know if that Amazon is associated with Goodreads. I'm actually going to look that up now or if it's independent. Let's see here. But Goodreads is a summary of all the different top quotes. And it's actually a pretty cool platform. It's kind of like a social network because it's designed to help you figure out what to read next, see what your friends are reading. You can rate things. You can have like book clubs on there. It's really cool. And I use it off and on. I haven't really gotten that into it. But every once in a while, I'll go in there and update it when I think about it. It is really great for finding quotes or looking up a quote for a book, seeing maybe determining if you do want to read it based on the quotes. I don't see any indication that this is associated with Amazon. But one thing I do really like about reading Kindle books, and I do this through the Libby app, it's L-I-B-B-Y. And it's really neat because as long as you have a library card, I don't know if this is an international thing, but it's definitely true in the United States. You can use your library card to digitally log into Libby and borrow books, either Kindle versions or they have a non-Kindle version of certain books, but I actually much prefer the Kindle version because of the abilities of the app. You can also download audiobooks on there and you get them for up to 21 days, which is usually plenty of time as long as you're not trying to read too many books at once and you stay on track with it. But anyways, what I really like about Kindle, which by the way, you can use on a non-Kindle device, you can get the Kindle app on a Mac computer you can get it on your iPhone. You can get it on an iPad. Whatever you have, there's probably a Kindle app for it. And 
in the Kindle app, when you're reading a book, they will actually highlight popular quotes. And I believe you can turn this off if you don't want it, but I have it on because I find it super interesting to see what other quotes people are paying attention to. Not in terms of swaying me towards like a group mentality of, oh, they like that quote. I should like it too. Just more out of curiosity. And then I'll find myself reflecting on what is it about this line that so many people highlighted? I think that they somehow you can sync up your quotes with the system and then Kindle will then find the most popular quotes of the whole book and highlight them throughout the book. And it's just always really, really interesting. It puts you into other people's heads a little bit. Well, I just want to say I've attempted to read on Kindles before, not for any extreme length of time. Like an actual Kindle device, or you mean like just using the app on another device? Actually picking up a Kindle and using it along with an iPad. And I find that for me, I'm able to read for longer, more focused periods of time with an actual physical book because I don't get the same level of eye fatigue or eye strain that I do by staring at a screen for that long. That's my personal thing is I find I have more stamina to keep reading longer by doing a physical book. And that's one of the reasons other than the tactility and the smell and the feel that I prefer doing physical books. I feel myself like my brain and my eyes getting tired when I use tablets. Well, that's why I was asking if you use an actual Kindle because the iPad and the Kindle are designed differently because the Kindle has always been about reading books, whereas the iPad is a device that happens to be able to read books. So the way that your eyes respond to the iPad, I think technically is very different because of the different lighting structure and the design of a Kindle, which was always made for reading books. I don't know. For me, it's just one of those things too that I think my cranky old man comes in here and goes, everyone should buy vinyl records and drive stick shifts and everything's digital, damn it. There's part of that too. Sure. Well, I would say a happy medium is also to use blue blocker glasses, which is when I'm on my best behavior. (laughs) My ideal is to wear my blue blockers whenever I'm reading from my iPad, especially when it's at night because I love reading before I go to bed. Almost every single night I read for about an hour or so until I get sleepy. It helps me fall asleep. And it's just kind of a nice way to end the day, keeps me off other devices. And your brain will actually continue to think and process information while you're sleeping. So it's always interesting to see when I wake up, if I'm still reflecting on things or if I have aha moments or I was able to take in the information differently or if it impacted my dreams. It's super fascinating. And I don't know if I have that experience with the fatigue. That's something I try to notice. But like I said, I guess it's all personal preference. I don't like having a ton of books like on a shelf picking up dust and all that. (laughs) I went through it. I think I talked about this in another episode, but I did the Marie Kondo life-changing magic of tidying up. I think about two years ago, exactly, actually. It was in April 2018. And one of the big experiences I had through that process was going through all my books and you pick up each one and you ask yourself if it brings you joy. You ask yourself, are you going to read it again? Could you give it to somebody? Would you loan it to somebody? And going through that whole process, it's so interesting how sentimental books can be. And so through that process, though, I was able to go through my books and really weed out which I wanted to actually keep the physical copies of. And I also think I mentioned this, but I'll just say it again since we're talking so much about books right now, is that I 
took any book that I was on the fence about and looked it up in Libby, borrowed it, and then highlighted all the important parts. Actually, it took the time to go through each book I had page by page, find my highlights in the physical book and highlight them in the digital book because you can sync your Kindle notes, your highlights to your Kindle account on Amazon. And then your highlights are stored online for you to access anytime. That made it easier for me to let go of books that I was keeping just because of all my notes in them. Oh, that's really convenient. Wow. It was a process. I actually, I have this memory of taking a stack of books to the laundromat with me because where I was living at the time didn't have a washer and dryer. So I would go to the laundromat every once in a while and be sitting there for 45 minutes at a time in between the cycles of laundry. And I took a stack of books with me to the laundromat and highlighted them as I was waiting for my laundry to finish. And it took, you know, at least probably 10 to 20 minutes per book to go and sync up all the highlights. But it was kind of neat because it also got me to reread them and see what has changed over time, which highlights still had meaning for me, which highlights I forgot about, which highlights I was thinking about differently. And I really enjoyed that process. And for me, I'm such a person that enjoys researching that having all of that data digitized is really helpful because I like to go back and re-reference it. And having to go into a book and like try to find the page that something was on is like, not a process I enjoy, but having it digital where you can just type a keyword into your Kindle notes, it's awesome. So I really enjoy that part. The process of tidying up just gave me an opportunity to reflect on which books did I really want. Actually, going back, we should go back to Tim's blog post anyways, because there's some really good points in here. He said that he received typically dozens of unsolicited books every week. And he would donate all of these books to libraries, but it was a waste of trees. It was consuming energy of his own and, you know, the transportation. And he had to actually go to each individual publisher and ask them not to send books anymore. And I started thinking about that with myself. I mean, I get offered a book maybe once a month, nowhere near the frequency of Tim, but people will approach me asking me to review their books and Honestly, I've been sent a lot of books that I still haven't had a chance to read or only read part of it. And then I ended up never doing a full review on or it took me a really long time to do it. And it just did feel like a bit of a waste to me. It also isn't quite fair to the publisher either. So that was something I reflected on. Do you still get offers to review books, Jason? And what do you say to them? I still do get offers to review, but also endorse books. That's another thing that I get is book endorsements more frequently. And I don't get as many as I did when I had the TV series on. I remember that on Cooking Channel when I had How to Lift 100. I was just getting a deluge of offers to review and endorse books, but maybe a handful, maybe five, seven a year now at max. Well, that was another thing that Tim wrote about in here which he's had a public policy of not blurbing books because it was too hard for him to pick and choose among friends. And so he had to have a blanket statement about not only was he not blurbing, but now he's actually not reading them. (laughs) He said in here, things can and do get uncomfortable because he's still asked on a weekly basis to blurb books. Wow. It's so interesting just to see what other people go through and put things into perspective for our own lives. 
Another reason that he decided not to read any new books in 2020 is he's susceptible to the fear of missing out, aka FOMO, when it comes to new and popular books. He's always found refuge in books, but being wedded to the identity of the well-read guy can breed keeping up with the Joneses' consumption. Taking new books off the table for 2020 also takes that type of FOMO off the table. He can't compulsively scratch the itch of new, so he's better able to calmly use other criteria. That's interesting. The part that jumps out at me in particular is the aspect of the FOMO and his perception of himself as being someone who is regarded as well-read. And I think this is so wonderful. It, to me, kind of harkens back to the episode we did about titles and identity. We'll link to that one in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done still to this day, as if we've been doing this 50 years. To this day, it's still one of my favorite episodes. But I think it harkens to this, at least what I've been feeling currently during this shelter-at-home process during the time that we're recording this episode, that, oh, you're an entrepreneur. You should be really productive right now. You guys should be scaling the podcast. You should be getting a lot more sponsors. You should be making this kind of money. You should be seeing this as an opportunity to reinvest your wealth. I'm seeing so my version of this, if I can go on a small tangent, is, oh, we're entrepreneurs in the wellness field, so we ought to be doing X, Y, and Z. And I feel like, wait a second, are we being productive? Yes. Are we moving the needle forward? Yes. Are we being like psychotic about it? No. And so I don't know. I just go back to this thing he said of like, being perceived as someone who's like a well-read person. I believe that this part of identity and perception, especially as an artist or a creator or an entrepreneur during this whole shelter at home thing has been kind of magnified of like, well, you know, back when the Black Plague was happening, that's when all of these magnum opuses of humanity were written. It's like, maybe I don't feel like writing my magnum opus right now. I don't know. That was a tangent. But to me in my head, it made sense. Oh, it definitely makes sense. I mean, that's an ongoing theme when it comes to our personal and professional lives is just like Tim said, is keeping up with the Joneses and trying to be perceived as a certain type of person. And that fear of missing out is huge. And it's also status anxiety is this feeling that if you don't measure up to other people or you don't keep your status, then you're not going to be relevant or important or loved or whatever else your status is attached to. And I think that's interesting too, as it's always interesting to reflect on your own behavior and the behavior of other people. And I get really excited about books. I read a lot. And whenever I read a really good book, I want to talk about it and I want to encourage other people to read it. And I find that majority of people that I talk to are not as into reading as I am. I think it's actually on the rarer side or maybe just rare in terms of the people that I'm around. I have to pause for a second. Why? <laughs> since, <laughs> since this episode is about stories, I'm just going to tell you what I'm seeing outside the window that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> oh, this ought to be interesting. So, okay, Whitney has this great bay window that looks out onto her street from her podcast. So what are you seeing? Just that, I don't know. It really wasn't that funny, but it was one of those things that you'd see on TikTok or back in the day in America's Funniest Home Videos. And I'm just going to take a slight tangent to share this little story. So directly across the street, they're building a new building, condos. And every day I've been just casually watching the construction guys and especially interesting to see how things have changed or what hasn't changed during the quarantine. And this one guy was helping this truck or flatbed truck, right? It's probably 
twice the size of a average car, maybe one and a half times, let's say. Twice the size of Jason's Fiat, that's for sure. Maybe three times. Anyways, not huge, but a flatbed truck that was backing up and this construction guy was waving him into the spot and he just backed right into a sign <laughs> on the street, like a signpost. Oh, so the no. back of the truck like rubbed up against the signpost and then like the construction guy in the street is like waving at him to stop. The guy pulls forward and when the truck pulls forward, he hit it again and then he backed <laughs> up one more time and hit it a third time. And it was just one of those like comical moments where you're just like, oh, gosh. But they acted like so nonchalant about it, which made it, I guess, less funny. It would have been a little funnier if like maybe they had caused actual damage. But I'm really glad that they didn't. It sounds almost like that scene, that classic scene from the first Austin Powers movie when he's in yep. the cart and he's in the hallway and he keeps banging against the walls like backs up, moves forward. That's the image that came into my mind of the Austin Powers golf cart moment. <laughs> yeah, but it was kind of different from that because they were not being that careful. <laughs> he was Indeed. The most interesting part is none of them seem to care that they hit the sign, but it does. It looks like this weathered flatbed truck that probably has hit a lot of things in its lifetime. Can I just bring up one quick thing and we'll get back yeah. to the Tim article? Why is it that in terms of our colloquialisms, how we speak, we always hear, oh, he was very nonchalant about it. We never hear... You know what? He was a little too chalant for my taste. <laughs> we always hear non is chalant even a word? Let's see. C H L A chalant. It is. It is a word. Chalant is a word. Nonchalant. So chalant would mean to be careful, attentive, or concerned. As in nonchalant would be not being careful or unattentive or completely disconcerned. So yes, apparently chalant. <laughs> It's a word that no one uses. You know what? I like him. He acts very chalant around women. I like him. <laughs> that sounds like a word that you would use, Jason, in your vocabulary. <laughs> it is. And hereby declare on this might get uncomfortable that chalant will be in my vocabulary from this point forward. Yeah. It's actually a really nice sounding word, too. I like that word. I thought you were going to say it's funny how Things when we see accidents happening, for some reason, that's like one of our favorite types of humor as a society. Like we love seeing people. We talked about this before. We often reference that video of that guy falling down the escalator and it looked like it really hurt, but he got up and he was completely fine. So that made it really funny. If he was actually hurt, it wouldn't have been funny. Yes. But when we see accidents that look like they're going to be really bad and then end up not being as bad, it's really funny. And it's so interesting. Like, what is it about the brain or just like human consciousness where we like seeing accidents happen? Is it laughing because it's like a form of release, like or relief where, oh, phew, it didn't happen. Now we can laugh about it. It's like when you trip and you don't fall, you almost always <laughs> laugh afterwards. That's also partially embarrassment. Is it secondhand embarrassment? Is that why we're laughing? Like interested in the psychology. I bet there are studies about this. I mean, if you think about it, like coming back to storytelling, like a lot of the stories that are in our heads have some sort of experience like that, or there's either like a tragedy or something that was scary or something that was a close call. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, I don't know if we've ever talked about this in the podcast. I feel like maybe we referenced it once, Jason. Our trip, we've told this story so many times to our friends, but our trip to Utah where we got lost and we were all alone in the national park and didn't know if we were going to have to spend the night in that park. God, God almighty. Should we tell that story? 
Or should we save that for another time? Should we get back to Tim? Part of me is really bored telling that story because we've told it so many times. I'm trying to think, have we ever publicly shared it? I have an idea. Why don't we save it for another one? Because then we can talk about times that we thought we were going to die, but didn't. That's a whole nother episode. Did we think that we were going to die? I had a moment of like panic and fear, but like, I don't know if I ever thought like, my life's about to end. But now we're just teasing them. Yeah, but that's good. That makes them want to stick around for the podcast. Stay tuned for our <laughs> not near death episode. We'll call it not near death experiences. Kind of, sort of, not really near death experiences. <laughs> I was just thinking about covered by scorpions. Okay, I was thinking about waking up with a scorpion in my mouth. Okay, yeah, I wasn't thinking about death, but I was like, yeah, you're gonna wake up with baby scorpions all over your body. <laughs> that was the most interesting thing of that experience was that since it was pitch dark, pitch black pitch dark, either one. We had no idea if there was anything even threatening us. Like We could have potentially been stalked by some wild animal or some crazy bug of some sort, creature, or even another human being. A lot of things could have happened to us out there. I was just thinking about creatures, to be honest. Also, if I may, if we go back to two things, number one, the laughing at accidents and going back to Tim's article, we'll put a pin in this kind of sort of near-death experience because it is a great story and I would love to tell it. There is a psychiatrist from Stanford who talks about this thing of why we find it funny when we see people falling down or having an accident. Oh, if I may. His name is William Fry. He's a laughter researcher and clinical psychiatrist from Stanford. He says, every human develops a sense of humor and everyone's taste in humor is slightly different, but certain fundamental aspects of humor help explain why a misstep or accident may elicit our laughter. The first requirement is something called a play frame which puts a real-life event in a non-serious context and allows for an atypical psychological reaction. These play frames explain why most people will not find it comical if someone falls from a 10-story building and dies. In this instance, the falling person's distress hinders the establishment of a non-serious context. But if a woman casually walking down the street trips and flails hopelessly as she stumbles to the ground and brushes herself off, The play frame may be established, and the observer may find the event amusing. Another crucial characteristic is incongruity, which may be seen in the improbable or inconsistent relationship between the punchline and the body of a joke or experience. People falling down are incongruent in the normal course of life in that they are totally unexpected. You don't expect someone to fall down in the middle of the street. So despite our innate empathetic reaction, oh, you poor baby, our incongruity instinct may be more powerful than that, provided that the fall event establishes a play frame in a non-serious context, laughter will likely ensue. Play frames and incongruity are psychological concepts. Only recently has our study of the brain and neurobiology caught up with them. In the early 90s, the discovery of mirror neurons led to a new way for us to understand the incongruity aspect of humor. When we fall down, we thrash about as we try to catch ourselves and stop the fall. The neurons in our brain control these physical movements, but when we observe another person stumbling and falling down, some of our own neurons fire as if we were the person doing the falling. These mirror neurons in our brain are duplicating the patterns of activity in the falling person's brain. So my hypothesis, the researcher says, regarding the relevance of this mechanism for humor behavior is that the observer's brain is, quote, tickled by the neurological ghost created by the mirror neurons. The observer experiences an unconscious stimulation from that ghost sensation, therefore reinforcing the incongruity perception. Wow. 
Good to know, right? So I guess we assess whether it's serious or not. Like, yeah, a person falling from the top of a giant building, not going to laugh. But a person being like, whoop, 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 I spilled my Frosty. <laughs> like, hi, they spilled their Frosty. Sorry, bud. Sorry. Frosties aren't good for you. They're not good for you. Sorry. See, even the thought of that. But I think it was more your voice. The performance oh, the whoop, 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 whoop. was... You're really good at that. And also, like, why did you say Frosty? I don't all things this person could have spilled why was it a frosty because i imagine just like the consistency of a frosty making an amazing splatter pattern like just blah, like just the frosty everywhere i don't know i think this is a really good time just to give a quick little plug for the brand cave shake actually it's now called space shake is that right they changed the name yeah they changed the name but i will say that if you're looking for a healthier you know what? I try not to use the word healthy to describe things. I would say if you're looking for a less processed, sugar-free, is it technically sugar-free? It is. No sugar added, whatever the right term is. Correct. Stevia sweetened. Yes. Is it stevia or monk fruit? I believe it was stevia. Well, either way, it tastes really great. It's by some people that we've known for years. We've watched this company evolve over time and they have three flavors and the vanilla, chocolate, and coffee. And at least one of them tastes a lot like a Frosty. I don't know. Jason, you've had them more recently. You gave me one. You gave me the coffee flavor, perhaps? I gave you the chocolate flavor. Okay. And it is the chocolate flavor that tastes the most like a Wendy's Frosty. And they're actually quite easy to make at home. It doesn't get exactly right, much like many products out there. They often taste better in the package because the people making them have spent a lot of time developing their recipes and their processes. But if you would prefer to make it at home, you could just combine coconut milk and a sweetener of choice. I think it's really that simple. You could add in vanilla for the vanilla flavor, coffee for coffee, or some cacao powder to make it chocolatey. And if you just blend that together, it tastes very similar to the Space Shake and very similar to a Frosty. So little tip for you there, because if you're like me and used to love Frosties before you started being more concerned with what ingredients you consume, there are times that I wish that I could just have a Frosty. Well, have you had a vegan Frosty alternative that was like designed to be like a Frosty, Jason? I have not. I've had many forms of non-dairy milkshakes, malts, and other kind of classic beverages, but never have I found something that was trying to create a vegan dairy-free version of a Frosty. That's too bad. Maybe there's a very small niche market for that. There could be. They probably have to change the name. This is a good time for the listener to chime in. Maybe you have a great recipe that you found. Maybe you've been to a really wonderful restaurant or cafe that has a plant-based unprocessed alternative to Frosties. We would love to hear it. So you can chime in at the website in the show notes section at wellevator.com. Before we wrap up this episode, I do want to finish out Tim's article here and see if there was any other points that I wanted to bring up. Oh, yes, there was. Okay. Maybe we can start to wrap up from, well, I don't know. There's a little bit more to go. It's a great article. Again, that will be linked too if you'd like to read it yourself or any of other Tim's work because he has a great website and podcast and books and he is just a wonderful man. Well, I've never met him, but I just would assume based on his online persona, but who knows if that's true. He's prolific. Prolific, I think is the word. Yeah. Yep. That's true. And lives in Austin, Texas, by the way, in case anybody wants to go meet him. (laughs) 
Okay. He said this last reason for not reading a new book that was published in 2020 is that he's prone to procrastinating via reading. It's a socially acceptable form of avoiding things, but let's make no mistake, reading is often used to avoid things. If I want to write more, for example, it behooves me to dramatically limit the types of books I'm allowed to read. What are your thoughts on that, Jason? It dramatically limits the types of books? Hmm. Meaning like he's just saying he procrastinates by reading. And I think I do this too. Hmm. I usually procrastinate via research which is usually done by reading something. I was about to say, I think that I have observed that there's a form of justification that I will employ when I do a lot of reading, which is I'm expanding my being and my knowledge base. <laughs> I'm becoming a better person. So take that list of things to do for work and my two businesses. Take that. I'm growing. Did you hear that? Did you hear that to-do list? I'm growing. So I have this weird mental justification that I use. I've observed that within myself. The next part of the blog post is a really lovely quote that I think is something else I'd love to hear your thoughts on, Jason. It's from Bishop Desmond Tutu. Is that how you pronounce it? Tutu? Yes. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Yes. He said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. That's really deep. And I feel very poignant to a lot of things happening in our society right now. A lot of things. Because I think that, wow, what comes up for me is that there's a lot of systemic inequality right now, financially, in terms of our healthcare, in terms of a lot of um, cultural support or governmental support. There's just a lot of things. And I feel like the image that I get of someone falling into the river it just, to me, brings up a lot of the things that we need to address in our society and in the inequality and resource distribution. And I don't know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. That's a deep quote. Yeah. And I wasn't entirely sure why Tim was using that, but I think maybe his point was when it comes to decisions, this is the next line. So I assume this is him explaining that quote, making too many decisions is often symptomatic of poor systems or process because that's where he's getting too exhausted from things, right? And he also had a quote related to guilt. Maria Popova, who said, guilt is the flip side of prestige, and they're both horrible reasons to do something. Wow. Guilt is the flip side of prestige, and they are both horrible reasons to do something. Wow, that's interesting. And so Tim started to ask, in his life, where am I making decisions or saying yes out of guilt? Can I create a blanket policy that makes it easier for me to say no? In what areas am I making lots of decisions or sending a lot of communication? Are they concentrated anywhere? Can I create a blanket policy that makes it easier for other people to make those decisions? And in what areas am I making a lot of decisions or sending a lot of communication? Are they concentrated anywhere? Can I create a blanket policy that entirely removes the need to make those decisions? And that's basically his reasoning for vowing to focus on no new books so that he will be able to have more time freed up and do less procrastinating and not feel the need to blur books or read books or manage his time 
feel like he's missing out all these different reasons. And it's definitely given me a lot of food for thought because I haven't really viewed books that way. But I think it's a really interesting perspective and it'll bring more awareness. I don't feel quite ready. It scares me to think of not reading books, but I want to reflect on why I'm reading it. What are my motivations? What do I feel around it? And that's something that I've actually been doing a lot of in the past week or so is tuning in to why I make certain decisions. I had an experience this week, a couple interesting experiences on two ends of the spectrum. For my personal brand, Eco Vegan Gal, I was approached by a few different sponsors and or sponsored opportunities, I should say. Sometimes they come in different forms. And a couple of them came with so much ease and grace. And it was really easy for me to make a decision about whether or not to do them. And there was this one opportunity that was tough for me to make a decision on. And I realized it felt hard because of the fear of missing out or the fear of maybe it was mostly the fear of missing out. I was afraid that I would miss out on some related opportunity. The opportunity at hand was not that appealing to me. And I had to really evaluate it before I said yes or no to it. And I had to step back and think like, would I enjoy this? Would this have a ripple effect that was greater than the actual process? How much time would be involved? Did this feel in integrity and alignment with who I am? And a lot of me was saying no to those things, but I still wanted to do it. And that was because of the fear of missing out. I thought, well, maybe I wouldn't enjoy this. Sometimes we do things that we don't enjoy because of what can happen in the future. The perceived reward. Yes, or the long-term benefit. The perceived potential of a reward, not a guarantee. Exactly. I find this too with reading. Sometimes I'll be reading a book and actually this just happened a few days ago now that I think about it. I was listening to an audio book and at first I really enjoyed it, but then I found myself just listening to it because I wanted to finish it, not because I was continuing to enjoy it. And that's something that's shifted a lot over the years is sometimes you start reading a book and you don't finish it because it's not what you thought it was going to be. And I have a struggle with that because I like to finish things. <laughs> I don't like that feeling of not finishing a book, but reading a book takes a lot of time. I mean, the average audio book, I think, is at least like three to six hours long. And that's a lot of time. Even if I'm listening to it while I'm driving or listening to it while I'm taking a walk. There's other things that I could be doing during that time. Other things I could be listening to. I could be having conversations. I could be doing my own version of a meditation. And we have to be really mindful of how we spend our time and tapping into those feelings of, are you doing these for the right reason? And I think that's such a great point that Tim is making here is that Sometimes we just go through the motions or we do things because of pressure and fear. But if we tap into it, we can more easily make decisions. And I think it's, it's actually a, for lack of a better term in this moment, like a muscle we need to work on is really listening to our bodies and having greater self-awareness about our motivations. Because a lot of times we make decisions based on things that don't feel true to us. And if they don't give us a great enough reward overall, whatever that reward may be, then they can feel like a major waste of time. And going back to one of Tim's original points about only having the literal time in your life to read 300 more books, which may or may not seem like a lot. I mean, 
it's basically the point is that we don't have as much time as we think we do. So we have to be very mindful of what we decide to do with every moment. And I think learning how to make the right decisions for ourselves is a huge life skill. And one of the greater lessons that I've been working on myself recently, and it's interesting how that has played a big role or has a big theme, I should say, in terms of book reading, which feels like a really big part of my life. Wow. It's such an interesting topic because this idea that we have to do things we don't enjoy or suffer through the experience of something for the potential possibility of reward afterward, that's deep. I mean, that really hits me because I think that's something that I still engage in. And one thing that Whitney, you and I were talking about through text this week was the idea of making decisions out of distress or desperation. And I think right now in particular with the COVID crisis and shelter in place and the economy kind of grinding to a halt, I'm observing myself in moments of projections of fear or panic or lack, wanting to make desperate decisions. And I've thankfully garnered the presence of mind to observe myself feeling desperate and anxious and fearful and going like, you don't want to make a decision from this place. Whether that's work or the other day I was like, I should sell my car. I need the money. There's been a million versions of this, but I think it's so interesting you're talking about this because there's this idea that if I endure pain or something horrible now, I'm going to get rewarded for it later. And that's a deep psychological mechanism for a lot of people, myself included. Absolutely. It's interesting that this topic of reading books and stories, I mean, all of this also applies to any type of input, generally for entertainment, but also for knowledge. There's so much information out there. I mean, you could apply this to watching TikTok videos because TikTok videos are basically storytelling. It's somebody sharing a story of their lives, trying to entertain you somehow. And entertainment is a huge part of our culture in our lives as human beings. We thrive for it, on it. We crave it. And we can also become very addicted to it. We can become addicted to watching TV, to watching movies, to reading books, to listening to podcasts and audiobooks and creating stories. It's a huge role in our lives. And I think the more that we step back and examine it and the purpose that it serves in our lives is really key. I mean, I have to reflect on my usage of social media and I notice a lot about myself through that. I mean, especially with TikTok, I have a lot of different reactions to it. I find it's mostly pleasurable. It's mostly stimulating in a positive way. But every once in a while, actually in the past 24 hours, I had a couple moments where I was spending time on TikTok and I spend a lot of time on there more than other platforms. I don't know if I mentioned this in the podcast, but I used to watch YouTube fairly frequently and I've spent a huge part of my career creating content on YouTube. And I used to spend a lot of time on Instagram, but now I spend all of that time on TikTok instead. And I do that because I'm fascinated by it. I do that because I enjoy seeing other people's lives. It has been a very positive experience, but every once in a while, I get triggered by it and I get the comparison trap from it. And it brings up intense emotions that I have to navigate. And I think if you're not aware of the role of storytelling, it can have some negative effects on you. I mean, you can watch a scary movie and have nightmares. You could watch a reality TV show and feel like it was a waste of your time or you get into the comparison trap because a lot of those shows 
are highlighting incredibly good looking people. Or you could watch it and start to feel resentful. I know I feel that way sometimes with reality TV. And I just see like these people that don't feel like they're making, in my opinion, a a positive (laughs) or beneficial. They're not playing a beneficial role in society, right? Which is such a major judgment. But I'll just be honest in that I feel that way sometimes. You know, you watch these dating shows. For example, there's this show on Netflix I watched for entertainment purposes. It's a new dating show that they have. And it's like they're just highlighting how these women are more beautiful than they are intelligent, or at least that's what they want you to think by watching the show. And it's so easy to get into that judgment place of why are these people on TV and they're going to make all this money and become famous from it. And They're not even contributing anything of value, right? That's like a big, for lack of a better term, like judgment that we place on people that we see in entertainment. And it's just really interesting if you step back and just notice how you're reacting to things and all the different assumptions that you make. And it shows you a lot about your perspective on the world and what you think of is a valuable. And yet the very people that make these judgments, myself included, really find a lot of enjoyment watching those people, right? So it's like this bizarre relationship where sometimes you kind of like hate watch things. Like I'm only watching this because I don't like it. I'm only watching it because I want to have an opinion on it. I'm only watching it to make fun of somebody. That evokes a lot of like very uncomfortable feelings for me. And yet that's a huge part of storytelling in our culture right now. It's so interesting you bring it up because I didn't even know that this, you said hate watch. Someone told me, who was it? Oh, last year, Jackie Soban, Vegan Yak Attack, who shot my book Eternity and has had several best-selling cookbooks. She was talking about hate following people on social media. I was like, hate fo- Like, what is hate following? She's like, they annoy you or they, you know, you love to bash their shit, so you follow them. And I'm like, I wonder if low-key I'm hate following anyone and don't know it. Oh, yeah. If I think about who I follow on social media, and I'm going to be a broken record here, I've been meaning to do a social media purge for a while and have actually thought if I just unfollow like 20 people a day over the course of this lockdown, I'll probably get it done. But when she said that hate following people, I'm like, I don't have any enemies. We talk about storytelling. And I think about the whole thing we have around the archetype of an enemy or an evil one or who had the quote, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, that classic quote that we've all heard of. If I think about it, I don't really have any enemies or adversaries. And that is such a huge part of the archetypes of storytelling. We see that in Hollywood. We see it in our sports, our professional sports, you know, the adversaries and rivals and enemies. But if I really get down to it, Whitney, I don't think I have any enemies or rivals in my life. I don't think that those archetypes exist for me, which is very interesting to see that because That is such a deeply embedded part of our psyche as humans in our storytelling. Absolutely. And I try to reflect on that too. It's a huge part of self-awareness is to really pay close attention to how you react to people socially. And I've noticed that within myself. Sometimes I will go and check in on somebody on like social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, et cetera, or even TikTok now because I use that so much. And I'll find myself checking in to see if there's anything that triggers me. <laughs> it's like, ooh, like, have they done anything that I can judge? Maybe that's more of it. And whenever I catch myself doing that, it is a really humbling experience <laughs> because that's not something that I feel proud of by any means. 
And those are the sort of things that I'm afraid of other people doing to me. I think a lot of the times when you are thinking that somebody is going to think something poorly of you, it's a great time to ask yourself, do you think that way about other people? And then likewise, when you catch yourself doing that to other people, are you doing that because you do that to yourself a lot, right? Like if you're body shaming somebody, are you body shaming yourself a lot as well or vice versa, right? Are you body shaming yourself and thus shaming other people so that you can drag them down to your level? And I think a lot of our entertainment is based around feelings like that is, are these archetypes on reality TV shows, for example, created simply so we can feel better about ourselves because there are sides of humanity that we don't agree with. And I think that's just a huge part of human storytelling, the Joseph Campbell story structure, and also religion too. I mean, if you look at the stories in the Bible and the lessons there and what they teach us about how to live and whether we view things through a lens of right or wrong, and then a lot of entertainment is based on evoking really strong reactions. We look at that show Tiger King on Netflix and how that's had a massive flood of reactions and how it creates a conversation. And so people start watching things because they want to be part of the conversation or they don't watch it because they don't agree with what happens or what they think happened and they don't want to be part of the conversation. You know, it's like no matter what, a story like that is having a huge ripple effect whether you consume it or not, you still have some sort of opinion on it. And so that story has actually played a really big role in our lives, no matter what. I think that there's also this deeply fractured part of our value system in our human society. And it is this, and you talked about looking looking for ways to judge people and a mirror of how we make those same judgments about ourselves, And celebrity and fame and wealth is one thing that I've seen a lot, especially during this crisis of people shaming people for their wealth and their privilege and very specific examples of that. Specifically, I think about Ellen DeGeneres. I think about David Geffen. I think about some of these people that have been publicly skewered for some of their, quote, insensitive comments or insensitive ways of being during the COVID-19 crisis. And being on their yacht in the middle of the ocean, you know, or in their $45 million mansion, whatever it may be. But the point I want to make is I think it's a little bit mixed signals and it's a little bit of a convoluted value system in that our society encourages us to chase material wealth and celebrates and deifies fame, deifies celebrity, deifies professional athletes, deifies musicians and actors and entertainers, especially when they've done well. But during this crisis, I've seen a lot of privilege shaming. Like on the one hand, it's like, yay, let's celebrate them because they've made a bunch of money and they're famous and they do their art and we all celebrate them. But then it's like, oh, but don't you flaunt it. No, 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 no. If you flaunt it right now, fuck you. Fuck you for flaunting it. And it's a bit, mm, dare I say, psychologically twisted and maybe a little schizophrenic because it's like, hey, we celebrate you and you're amazing and we're going to give you all this money and privilege, but don't you flaunt that privilege, not like this and not right now. It's very strange. Like I've been observing that the past month and a half and it's so interesting to watch people shame famous people right now and rich people. Mm, Wow. This conversation is definitely, (laughs) I think, bringing light to the fact that storytelling is a much bigger part of our lives than we realize because it's not just the stories that we consume, it's the stories that we think and how storytelling 
I mean, the reference to the Bible, I think, is actually a really big point, too, is that the stories that we're told about how to live right, how to live well, is perceived as bad and wrong. And all the different interpretations, it's like human beings are just playing an endless game of that telephone game we played as a kid, (laughs) where one person hears something or says something, and then everybody else has their different interpretations based on how they heard it and how they're passing it on. And it gets very convoluted. And we have to step back and examine what stories have we been told and how are we interpreting them? And then how are we telling those stories to ourselves and other people? And what role are we playing? And what is true? Is anything true? Is there anything actually factual? Or is it just all a matter of perception? And even if we don't think that we storytell very much, I think that we do a lot more than we realize. And we're also greatly impacted by stories. I think that's actually something I spend a lot of time reflecting on is what stories have I been told and how has that impacted my outlook on the world for better or for worse? And if you step back and say, I don't need to believe this story, is this story actually serving me? That also ties back into Tim's point here is, are those stories that he was reading in a book, whether fictional or non-fictional, were those serving him? Were they helping him make the right decisions for himself right now? And I think that's really the biggest point. If we tie everything into a nice little bow today, if we can really step back and ask ourselves, what are we consuming? What are we putting out there? What is our input and our output? And how is that shaping our lives and having a ripple effect in all the lives around us. It's a great bow. It's a wonderful bow. And ultimately, this is the power of story and the power that we give meaning to things. I think that's a big, big part of how we interpret stories, stories around what has happened to us or what we are currently experiencing, and then the stories of other people's lives that we read and perhaps become inspired by, disgusted by, reviled by, celebrate. It's really about the meaning Because the stories themselves are just words and concepts and story arcs and characters. It's really we, as we interpret those stories, give meaning to them or don't give meaning to them. So we want to thank you today for joining us for this episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable, talking about the power of story and meaning in our lives. For all of the amazing books and articles and people that we mentioned during today's episode, you can go to our podcast show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, and click on the podcast tab at the top. Or you can go directly to our website, which is podcast.wellevator.com to listen to all of our episodes, the podcast show notes, and again, all of the books and research materials we recommended in today's episode. We also have some incredible free resources on our website at wellevator.com including some of our paid programs like the Consistency Code and Wellness Warrior Training. But we also have some great free resources like You Are Enough and also our brand new book from Chaos to Calm, talking about how to battle anxiety. So great resources. We've got great programs and always releasing new content for you to live your best life mentally, physically, and spiritually. Stay tuned for another episode coming soon. And again, we will have some great, great guests to help you thrive in all areas of your life because that's something we are incredibly passionate about. So thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you with another episode soon. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. 
For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 